0: for a change of our whole emotional chemistry by the receiving of Your Word. We thank You in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, uh, Luke chapter 10. We uh, uh, were on this the uh, last time, two weeks ago, and Hal shared last week, but I'm going to take up where uh, I was at there. Let's read it. Luke chapter 10, verse 38. Now, the Holy Spirit is anointing. The Holy Spirit is emphasizing the anointing that was upon Mary of Bethany. I just want to say that at the beginning. Right now, the Holy Spirit, this is a now word in the kingdom of God across the earth, the Holy Spirit is emphasizing the anointing that was upon Mary of Bethany. To sit at the feet of Jesus. The anointing to linger long in the presence of the Lord. It takes an anointing to do that. That's not just the power of the flesh to be more resolute and committed. It's more, than, uh, it's more than religious self-determination. I will, I will, I will. There's an anointing to linger long with an engaged spirit in the presence of God. And the Lord's emphasizing that anointing. And it's going to increase and increase and increase until the Lord returns. Let's read the passage, Luke chapter 10, verse 38. Now, it happened as they went, as they went, that he, oh yeah, entered a certain village. And a certain woman named Martha welcomed him. Of course, we know the village was Bethany, just outside of Jerusalem. She had a sister called Mary. She sat at the feet of Jesus. Now, we know that Mary appears three times in the Scripture, or her story is told three times, three different, uh, three different episodes in her life. And on all three occasions that Mary is set forth in the Scripture, she's sitting at the feet of Jesus. Three out of three times, that's not an accident, that, uh, of, of the writers of Scripture, that was meant expressly by the Holy Spirit to emphasize she's at the feet of Jesus. Mary, who had sat at the feet of Jesus to hear His Word. Of course, that's the best place to hear His Word. A heart of devotion, listening. But Martha was distracted with much serving. She approached the Lord and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. And Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, number one, you're worried easy, and number two, you're bothered easy. Two things that undermine our ability to enjoy intimacy with God. You worry easy and you're troubled. You bother easy. Your opinions are too important to you. Minor things have become majors and you're so bugged all the time you can't engage your spirit. You're worried and you're troubled about many things. But here's the verse I want to look at. But one thing is needed. And Mary has chosen the good part, which will never be taken away from her. And We talked about verse 42 for about uh, 45 minutes the, uh, two weeks ago. But I want to emphasize this thing. One thing is needed. Now, I mentioned earlier, it's not the only thing in the kingdom of God. Jesus didn't say that. Don't say, don't add things to Jesus' words here. He didn't say there's only one thing that you will do in the Christian life. He is talking from the from the from his big picture perspective. He's saying this, in essence, when the human heart is engaged with God in intimacy and devotion in these ways, I assure you the rest of the major things of the kingdom will happen effectively and efficiently in their time. It's a false argument. It's an academic argument that has... Meaning there's no reality in the argument, it's just something people talk about, and there's a number of reasons why I talked about that last time, but it's just purely an academic argument that says, either you're going to sit at the feet of Jesus, or you're going to go out and do all the works of the kingdom and do all the service. Anyone who sits at the feet of Jesus, given a little bit of time, they are running headlong into the great evangelist of all the ages. Don't worry when someone wants to sit at the feet of Jesus long hours. They're running right into kindness incarnate, compassion incarnate, soul winning, power, healing, ministry. They're running headlong into Him with His burning heart. There's no safer place than to sit at the feet of Jesus to be empowered and equipped to go do the works of the kingdom. But it's exactly opposite That if we don't sit at His feet, if our hearts don't touch the fire of His heart, we get burnt out in the very mandates of the kingdom over time. I want to say it again. The first commandment, with a gazing heart, learning and enjoying and entering into the anointing to be red-hot lovers of God, the first commandment must, must be first, and the second commandment must be second. The second commandment can't be third, fourth, or fifth. The second commandment's way up on the list. It's number two. But if it's first, if we confuse the order and the second commandment becomes first, we make an idol out of the church. We actually lose our ability to impact and build the church in a proper way. The second commandment is not to be first. It's not to be third. It's to be second. Things must be in their proper order. And there's a... There's... A lot of uh, some well-meaning and some not well-meaning discussion, dialogue, argument about it's dangerous to sit too uh, long at the feet of Jesus because all these other things don't happen. I say in the big picture, they will happen far more effectively. It's Jesus, the Son of God, the God-man Himself, who said, verse 42, Only what I mean, but one thing is needed. One thing is needed. Again, he didn't say only one. He said one thing is needed. It's the primary thing that sets into motion everything else in divine order. Now, it's this one thing, this gazing heart, this enjoying intimacy, which is the great power source, if you will, of the kingdom of God. It's the means of which the Holy Spirit power continually supplies the heart. When we are cut off from that supply of the Spirit's power in the heart because we're too busy serving and we don't be renewed. We don't have new and fresh encounters with the heart of God. We will burn out. We will be broken and bruised in the very work of serving others in the kingdom of God. And in five and ten year cycles, more of God's servants are on the bench again with a complaint, an argument... They're beat up, they're burned out, they're bruised, and they're not on the front lines. And so in the big picture, we lose much ground by not keeping this thing in divine order. Now the heart of uh, the forerunner calling, the very core of the forerunner calling is to be a people of one thing. One thing is needed. And it sets into motion everything else. One thing is needed. We are a people of one thing. It's critical that we maintain a lifestyle that we carry our hearts as a people of one thing and then let the other things flow in their place. And all the powers of hell will will fight and, and wrestle us so that we are not a people of one thing. So that He can lay many traps for us when we get out of this. Okay, let's go to an unusual passage, Micah chapter two. Now where is Micah? It's right in the middle of the minor prophets, so you're just going to have to just work your way through. It's, uh, I think it's about seven or eight from the end. seven or eight from, from uh, Malachi at the end of the Old Testament, and just a couple four or five of them after uh, five, six, seven after uh, Isaiah. Right in the middle, Micah chapter 2. I want to talk about being a people of one thing. We are a people that God is wanting to awaken a fierce determination to go after something with blinders on our eyes. Like they would take the, the racehorses and put blinders on their eyes. So they couldn't be distracted and go right or left. We want to be people that are a people of one thing. It's a very unusual reality to see a people of one thing because we're we're suffering from option fatigue in the church and outside the church so many options so many things pulling at our time and so many things nagging at our conscience because we get these, this, guilt, this guilt manipulation to do a hundred things that aren't the will of God because somebody else is doing them with confidence then we lose our bearings we spend so much time expending our resources and our conscience being troubled over all kinds of manipulation even in the kingdom of God God has called us to be a people of one thing. Micah chapter 2. I don't know if you found it yet. <clears throat> this will be our power. This will be our strength in the days ahead. It's talking about the forerunner ministry at the end of the age. Micah chapter 2, verse 12. I will, I will surely assemble all of you. O oh, Jacob, I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them all together like sheep of a fold. Like a flock in the midst of their pastors, they shall make a loud noise because of the multitude. God says, I'm going to gather my people, and it's going to be a multitude of people. There's a lot of great points in verse 2. Each, one, uh, each line has a distinct meaning, but we're going to skip that. There's going to be a multitude. Now look at this, verse 13. The one who breaks open will come up before them. They will break out. They will pass through the gate. They will go out by the gate. And the king will pass before them, and the Lord will be at their head. Now, that's a a, a lot of uh, key points in here that we're not going to develop, but I want to make one point, and then go back to another passage. The Lord is raising up a people of one thing. They break out in order to break open. What I mean is this. We break out of the, of the traditional paradigms that are not biblical. There's many, many paradigms in the church and in the kingdom of God that are not, that, that are not biblically uh, uh, based and Holy Spirit energized. But they're just things we take for granted. Many, many things that we do. Many mindsets that we have that under a close examination with revelation of the Spirit, they are are things that actually trap us and hold us back. In the charismatic church I'm talking about, the Lord wants to raise up a people who break loose from the crowd. We're not captivated and enslaved by what all the people that we, we know so well think about what we're doing. We've got to be able to break out from the crowd. In terms of our inner life. And what I mean by that is that the average believer, often, I don't want to say the average believer, but many believers, are, are so bound by what all the people around them are thinking about what they're doing. It takes so much emotional resource to manage all of that fear and question and manipulation. And we've got to break loose from this stuff. Because we're never going to have a fiery heart until we settle some real issues about being a people of one thing. Now this is going to be a group, and I don't mean a, a geographic group, but a couple million, maybe tens of millions. I don't know the number, but I mean it's not a little group. It's all the earth. They're going to break out. They're going to pass through the gate. They're going to break out of the normal boundary lines. But what's going to happen when they break out is that in the Spirit, they're going to break open things in the Spirit. They're going to be gatekeepers in the Spirit. They're going to open gates and doors in the Spirit. They're going to bring great blessing to a multitude that will gather. That's one of the critical premises of the Forerunner ministry. They break out in order to break open. They break out of the normal way of things. Now, our goal is not to be abnormal. I'm not trying to be biggest, best, or first. I have no interest in doing something different for the sake of doing something different. I only want to do something different because what exists is not the biblical pattern. I don't want to be different to be different. I have no interest in trying to manage all of the hassles that go with that. Believe me. I want to be different because what is is not sufficient. I want to be different because what is, is not getting the job done. I want to see, I want to begin to operate and enter into a corporate anointing where cancers can't live in the presence of the people of God. Where AIDS and disease and demons of pornography and drugs and alcohol, they cannot. Live in the presence of the people of God operating in the anointing. We gotta break something open, but I tell you, we're not gonna break open till we break out. And we're never gonna break out when, it, when we're a people of, of all things. We gotta become a people of one thing. And we gotta cut some of the strings. So we're not always looking over our shoulder, wondering who's worried if we're fasting and praying and going hard we got to break out of that. We really do. And lots of paradigms. Many, many new things that we don't know right now. Many paradigms we have today that we don't even know that the Lord's going to shatter them and cause us to break out of them. Philippians chapter 3. Back to the New Testament. Philippians 3. This idea that Jesus told Mary. One thing is needed. Well, He actually said it to Martha. But it's referring to Mary, Mary was a woman of one thing. She had one primary thing beating in her heart. And you couldn't pull her away from this thing. Now we know that King David was a man of one thing. Psalm 27.4, most of you know it well. I'll just quote it to you. Psalm 27.4, David said, This one thing, this one thing I do all the days of my life. I gazed on the beauty. It's interesting that the one thing that Mary did is the one thing that David did. It was this ability to linger long in the presence. Philippians chapter 3. David was a man of one thing. Mary was a woman of one thing. God wants us to be a people of one thing because at the very core of the forerunner ministry, it's a people of one thing. Beloved, you will never be a voice. You will never be a voice in the wilderness. You will never be a voice that makes a difference. And I don't mean you have to have a pulpit. I don't mean you have to uh, have a platform ministry. You may be a voice one-on-one. You will only be an echo until you become a person of one thing. You may have a, a natural communication gift. You can read all the top books and learn how to say it all. Actually, there's nothing wrong with that. It's not good enough for me. I don't want to be an echo. I'm not interested in being original. That means nothing to me. I have no interest in being original. I will take anything from anybody that that lives in my spirit. What I mean by being a voice, I want it to be alive in my spirit. I don't care about being novel or new. The first one who said it couldn't care less. I want to be a man that the fire of the reality is burning in my spirit. That's what I mean by a voice. And if we're going to be a voice, we've got to be a people of one thing. We've got to burn some bridges, settle some accounts, and our own soul, we're going to move on regardless who's mad, glad, and sad about it. It's for real. Even amongst ourselves. The Holy Spirit is emphasizing the anointing of Mary, this anointing of David. Philippians chapter 3 is one of those chapters that you hear, I've heard over the years, I've heard a number of people. My favorite chapter. It's one of those kind of my favorite chapters that you'll hear occasionally because it's one of the real dynamic, I mean, line upon line of of truths in Philippians chapter 3. And here's what's going on in Philippians 3. Paul does something very unusual. Paul does something very unusual. He takes a moment and he opens up his heart and he gives a little autobiographical peek at what motivates him. Now, you'll get one sentence from Paul here or there, but you don't, I don't know of any other place in the, in the whole, uh, in all of Paul's writings where he does this. Now, we get a little bit of Paul's story three times in the book of Acts. In Acts 9, and Acts 22, and Acts 26, they tell Paul's story, but it's Luke telling the story, not Paul. Somebody else is telling the story. One time that I know of, Paul gives a pretty lengthy view into his heart. It's the only time I know of it. Again, there's a verse here and a verse there, but nothing like this. Let's look. Let's just jump right into it. Right in the middle of it. My goal isn't to try to give an exegesis of this whole passage, but it's to point us to the necessity of a fierce, a fierce abandonment to be a people of one thing with no apologies. We don't... Have to apologize for the intensity that we live before God. We don't have to apologize to anybody, nobody, for who we are before God. It's good, it's right, it's biblical, but it's not popular in the church today. Prayer and fasting as a primary way to live is something that's okay. In a classroom, as long as nobody is actually doing it. It's an idea that preaches well, but when people do it, it disturbs everyone that they're around. Prayer and fasting, historically, is a very orthodox doctrine to preach, but it's a very disruptive reality to live in. It will disrupt everything around you when you live in it. And the devil doesn't care if you preach it. The church doesn't care if you preach it. But the devil and the church will get upset if you live it. Now, my goal isn't to get you to an adversarial, and not the whole church, by any means. The large portions. Now, I, I, I fear the statement I just said, because I don't want to ever say things to get people adversarial. But at the same time... If you're unaware of this and you're naive, you're going to have a real disillusionment. My point isn't, bah humbug, let's go show them how to do it right. I don't don't care about that. That's a wrong spirit. My thing is, when I run into resistance, I said, well, you know, I knew that was going to happen. That's what I'm trying to produce in you. I don't want to produce in you a negative spirit that says everybody's wrong. I want to produce into you a girded spirit so that when people do say it's wrong, you go, oh yeah, they told me they would do that. So you don't lose a step. That's what I'm trying to produce in you. But it's dangerous because whenever you say what a lot of the church does or doesn't do, you create false lines or unhealthy lines of us and them. I don't want to do that. But at the same time, I want you girded for action. Some of your best friends... You move into this more. We'll go, what are you doing? And they will put energy against you to stop you. For maybe five good reasons, or possibly five bad reasons. There's lots of reasons that somebody might uh, be motivated by. Paul the Apostle, verse 7. Philippians 3, verse 7. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. This is one of the great passages of Paul. Yet indeed I count everything lost, here it is, for the excellency of the knowledge. Paul said there's something so stunning, so fascinating, when new discoveries of the God-man touch my spirit. The excellency of the knowledge of Christ, Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things. And I count these losses as rubbish, rubbish. That I may gain, It's not the word gain, but the word experience. It's not that he's earning Jesus, he's saying that I can remove the barriers that hinder my experience. He's not talking about, I do all, I suffer all these things to, be, to earn Jesus. But what he's talking about, is removing the things that, that, that hinder our ability to experience Jesus. Okay, verse 10. Now, verse 10 is the key point I I want to make here. He says three things. We know this verse well, but, I mean, this this is not just a verse to memorize. This is the three, if you will, foundations of Paul's inner motivation. Here they are, right here. Paul, he puts these things together in such a Holy Spirit strategic way. We can build upon these three things in a major way. And then in, a, in verse 12, he calls these things one thing, this one thing. He talks about knowing Him. Number two, he talks about the power of the resurrection. And number three, he talks about the fellowship of suffering. Three things. Paul says, I want to know Him. But let's, let's go on a little bit. Then we'll come back to that verse. These three things, knowing Him. Intimacy with God, number two power of the resurrection, operating in the anointing. The ability to operate in the anointing. And the number three, the fellowship of sufferings, that He's going to bear the counterattack that is inevitable. He's going to bear the counterattack, the, the element of suffering. He has a revelation of suffering. It's, it's a paradox because the anointing prepares you for suffering and the anointing releases the counterattack that brings suffering. The anointing of God, operating in the anointing, actually prepares you for suffering. And operating in the anointing is that which releases the chain reaction in the kingdom of darkness for the counterattack. I love it how my friend, Francis uh, Japan, says it. He goes, new levels, new devils. He goes, when you operate in new levels of the anointing, you will operate in new devils, new dimensions of attack. But the anointing that prepares us is the very anointing that releases the attack. It releases a chain reaction in the the kingdom of darkness. But Paul has a revelation of the place of the attack, of the counterattack. And this was something he gloried in the ability to have intimacy with Jesus in this very necessary dimension of the kingdom of God. But he goes on in verse 12. He says, not that I've already attained all this. Nor that I'm perfected, because I'm not saying it's all I've got it all, but here it is. I press on. Beloved, that's the phrase. I press on. I press on. He's gonna press on to operate in those three things in verse ten to experience them. I want to press on, I want to lay hold of that which Jesus grabbed me, he laid hold of me for. The Lord Jesus laid hold of you for a very specific reason. There was something in the mind of God when you were born and something in the mind of God when you were born again. You were laid hold of by God for a very specific thing. And Paul said, I want to lay hold of that for, for which I was laid hold of by God. In the creative genius of God, you were hand picked and made created with passions. You were created for very, very specific things. You want to lay hold of that for which God laid hold of you for. But beloved, it is so common in the kingdom of God today to not lay hold of the thing for which we were born. To not enter into the destiny for which God has prepared us for. Because we're not a people of one thing. Trying to keep everybody happy. Trying to do business as usual. We're not willing to break out in order to break open. We just want to kind of go along. And we, want, we don't want people thinking we're too strange. And we don't want to be too uncomfortable. We do want a little bit of honor. I mean, you know, we are humans. And we do like that for real. And we need honor. We really do. But beloved, what's happening in the kingdom right now is not sufficient. It's not getting the job done. We've got to lay hold of that for which we were laid hold of for this hour of history. Now he goes on to say this. I don't count myself to having fully laid hold of it. He goes, I haven't apprehended. I don't have it all yet. I haven't entered into the fullness of everything I've been created for. Here he says it, but one thing I do. He goes, but I'm a man of one thing. One thing! I forget the things that are behind me. And in, the verse, in verse 12, he called it pressing on. Here he calls it reaching forward. I press on or reach forward. It's the same idea. I reach forward. And I'm going to get a hold of verse 10. He's talking about verse 10. I'm going to go after knowing Him, operating in the anointing, and bearing sufferings in the grace of God. He goes, one thing that I do... I forget the things that are behind me, and I press. I don't kind of leisurely kind of make my way forward and to let the chips fall where they fall. He goes, I press. I reach. He says, I I, I go out of my way to move the things hindering me from laying hold of the thing I, I was called by God for. Beloved, you won't accidentally lay hold of the highest things that God's given you. You won't accidentally lay hold of it. You will press. You will press. And the devil will press back. You will press. And your flesh will press back. You will press. And believers will press back. You will press. Unbelievers will press back. You must press. Reach. 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 Press. Reach. Verse 12, press. Verse 13, reach. Verse 14, I press. To the goal, the prize. He goes, there's a prize. In my mind, the prize is verse 10. He goes, I want to enter into the upward call. I want to enter into the highest dimensions of my destiny in God. He goes, I press. There's a prize in front of me. I have heard here and there over the years, oh, I'd be content with a little cabin on the edge of glory. That's not biblical fullness of what I was created for the full reward I want the prize and the prize isn't just an attainment in eternity that's not what I'm saying the prize takes care of itself I mean the eternal dimension takes care of itself the prize is that I might know him it's verse 10 that I might operate in the anointing and that I might bear the sufferings of Christ it was the Lord who identified this. He told Abraham, he goes, I am your exceeding great reward. I am your prize, Abraham. Genesis 15.1, he goes, I promised you nations and wealth and honor, but, but Abraham, Genesis 15.1, I myself am your exceeding great prize. I am the prize of all the ages. Beloved, this prize won't automatically just fall at your feet. There's a pressing, there's a reaching, there's being a, pers- a, a, a people of one thing. He says in verse 15, Therefore let as many as are mature have this in mind. Have, I mean, have this mind. Let them be a, a people of one thing. Let them have the mind to press, to reach for the prize, the one thing. And he goes, and if in any way you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you if you've got an open spirit about it. Nevertheless, to the degree that we've already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. He says, if you think you're mature, define maturity by reaching for the prize. With every, with all the resource available to you, go for the prize. Now let's look at verse 13 for a moment. The one thing I do, I forget the things. But you're behind. Now we are got to forget our sacrifices. We do. I'm not standing before the Lord trying to calculate how much how much I've given in prayer, fasting, finance, suffering. We forget that. Our goal isn't our sacrifice. Our, our glory isn't our sacrifice. The prize is Him. We forget that. It's like, Lord, I'm just trying to get the things, I'm trying to remove the things that hinder me. Even my sacrifice, if we get preoccupied with it, that's where religious pride comes, we forget that. We forget all the sacrifices. Somebody may say that, man of God. I think of a guy like Noel Alexander. I know his prayer life in the last 20 years. It's, it's very impressive. You talk to Noel, he doesn't care anything about his prayer life in 1990. He only cares about what's going to happen today and tomorrow. He says, wow, that was great. I want to touch God today. I don't even think about what I did in 1990. He's not trying to build a spiritual resume to try to impress somebody. He's forgotten that. I don't mean he just doesn't talk about it. That's not the point. You may reference it here and there. It may be useful. Paul uh, talked about it here and there. It didn't preoccupy Paul, though. It was a tool to inspire people. It didn't preoccupy Paul in his heart. It didn't matter to him in the way he carried his heart before God. Another thing we forget is our accomplishments. I'm the man that Somebody might say that led the great revival. I'm the woman that built the Bible college. I'm the man that led this ministry. I'm the woman that led that ministry. Does it really matter? It doesn't matter. We, we bring our hearts before us when we stand before God. I don't care what I did in sacrifice, and I don't care what I did and how big and how good or how bad. Even my failures, that's the next point. We let the failures go too. Our failures actually distract us more than our accomplishments do. Well, different people are different. But some people, they won't forget their failures. They won't forget their victories. They won't forget their accomplishments. They won't forget their sacrifice. Paul says, I forget all that. I don't even care. He goes, again, it's not that he has, he's claiming he has amnesia and he can't recall any of it. That's not his point. Because he used his victories and his failures as teaching tools to motivate others. But they didn't preoccupy him. They were not primary in the way he carried his heart with God. He forgot them in that sense. He goes, the one thing, I forget all those things. I forget what I gave up. I forget what I accomplished. I forget how I felt. He goes, I forget that. That's not where I live in my heart with God. He goes, I reach, I reach, I reach. I press for the prize. That's where I live. I'm a man of one thing. I'm pressing for the prize. I want to know him. I want to operate in the anointing. I want to get hot in the Spirit. King David was a man of one thing. Mary of Bethany was a woman of one thing. Let's look at verse 10. Oh, that I might know Him. There's so much in that that line there. It begins with knowing Him. It begins with the the Mary of Bethany heart of intimacy. The bridal paradigm experiencing the superior pleasures of the gospel by the discoveries of the beauty of God. That's all locked into knowing Him. Knowing Him is what is where Mary was at. It never says she didn't do the other two, but it all begins there. It all begins there. Verse 3 actually develops the know Him part. Philippians 3, verse 3, there's three or four, four, actually four definitions there, that are really describing different dimensions of knowing Him. We are the circumcision. Instead of that phrase, you could write, we are the covenant people. We are the people in covenant with the Godhead. That's what that means. We are in covenant with the Godhead. We worship God in the Holy Spirit. Wow! Wow! Beloved, we take time. We're not good at it. We're not experienced. We're not mature. We value learning how to worship in the anointing. This is a critical part of knowing Him. We, we, it costs us a lot of time and energy. And our bodies are tired. It takes a lot of work. And we're trying to get out of the comfort zone. We're all doing this together. We're wanting to worship in the realm of the Spirit. The next phrase, he says, we glory. That's, new, that's, that's how I learned at New American Standard. It says here in the New King James, we rejoice rejoicing in him, but I love the New American Standard. We glory in Christ Jesus. We're lost in our communion with God. We glory in the man Jesus. I mean, rejoice is good, but I love we glory in Christ Jesus. And then it goes on, the fourth statement of verse 3 says, we have no confidence in the flesh. Now, when Paul says we have no confidence in the flesh, he's saying more than just I don't trust in my prayer and fasting, I trust in the goodness of God. Beloved, if you have confidence in the flesh, that's why people have condemnation, because they have confidence in the flesh. Say what? When somebody has condemnation, basically what they're doing with condemnation is they're presenting themselves before God on the basis of how bad or good they're doing. They're putting their confidence in their flesh. How good they do or how bad they do, that's why they have condemnation. He says, I'm not going to even go there. I'm I'm not going to present myself on the basis of how good my week was or how bad it was. I'm not even putting my confidence on my track record. That's what he's saying. Basically, what he's really saying, when you don't put your confidence in your track record, that's how you have confidence in love. The only way we'll get confidence in love is when we don't put confidence in our track record in the flesh. When we do good, we feel more confident. That's confidence in the flesh. When we do bad, we lose our confidence. That's confidence in the flesh. We come just roll our heart in Jesus. Bad day, good day, who cares? I am yours, you are mine, let's do it. That's what he means, I have no confidence in the flesh. Those are four very key points to knowing him. For the covenant people, we're of the circumcision. We learn to operate and worship in the anointing. We glory in Jesus. He becomes our magnificent obsession. We have confidence in love because we don't put confidence in our track record. Good or bad, we don't put confidence. If we do it good or if we do it bad, we just say it's you and it's me and we're doing it now. We love each other. My, I am yours and you are mine. There's where it begins and ends right there every day. The reason there's so much fear, the reason there's so much condemnation, the reason there's so much guilt is because people are putting confidence in their flesh in the way they define their walk with God. We've got to disconnect them from that. We've got to get them into the basic foundations of the grace of God. Now I'm going to end on this point. I gave a message a month or two ago, whenever, on Daniel chapter 11 verse 32. And on Daniel 11:32 it says it gave a prophecy about the end times. It, it, it had to do with the days of Antiochus Epiphanes. For the Bible scholars it was a prophecy that related to that day. But it was also a prophecy 11, uh, Daniel 11:32 for the end of the age. It has a twofold fulfillment. But it says this: Those that know their God will do great exploits and they will have suffering as well. Daniel chapter 11, verse 32 and 33. Basically, Daniel prophesied Philippians 3.10. Daniel said at the end of the age, the important things are going to know God. They're going to be strong or they're going to have a mighty spirit. They're going to do exploits. They're going to operate in the anointing and they will know suffering. Basically, Daniel was prophesying the same three things to Philippians 10, 3.10, which is what Paul says in verse uh, twelve. He goes, I mean, in verse thirteen, he goes, "These are the one thing. I'm a man of one thing, beloved. We've got to be hot in our spirits. We have got to be hot in our spirits. We want a mighty spirit." We want our spirit to have might on it. We want to know God. We want to operate in the anointing. We want to learn to, to flow in this. We don't want to apologize for our intensity. We don't want to present ourselves in some kind of political balance that isn't the balance of the spirit, though it might be the balance of man, even in the kingdom. I don't want to be balanced so that I that all the smart guys go, well, he's really balanced. I want to be balanced. So when I stand before God in the judgment seat, He goes, well, you did balance, Jesus style. You had the fiery heart, the one thing. You bore the sufferings. You learned to operate in the anointing. You knew how to worship in the Spirit. That's balance, God's point of view. And men will tell you all the time about balance. And I appreciate hearing about balance But I am in a state and you're in a place. We've got to be be the real who we are, the real me, the real you. You've got to begin to prepare the person you're going to present to God on the last day. And when I stand before God on the last day, He doesn't care at all what the people on the earth told me was right. He cares about what I did according to His definition of balance. We're a people of one thing. We're going to have a voice. And when I say we, I don't mean this group. We're one billionth of the we I'm talking about. I'm talking about the people in the earth who say yes, capital Y. Yes, Lord. Pressing. Reaching. Forgetting. Moving on. A man, a woman of one thing, breaking out in order to break open. Amen. Let's stand. Jesus said it. One thing is necessary. Being a people of one thing. Jesus, I am by nature a man of multitudes of things. I want to be a man of one thing. I want to press. There's a prize. There's a prize. I want the prize. I want to know You. I want to operate in the anointing. I want the revelation of suffering. There's a prize. I want it. I want the prize. I don't want the accolades of man. I want the prize. I want to reach for it. The Lord's calling some of you. Whether you're in the IHOP team or not. He's calling you to be people of one thing for real. You could be an IHOP and be all over the map. All scattered on the inside. There's a prize we're after. We know what it is. Intimacy. Flowing in the anointing and the revelation of suffering. Because we're stirring up a hornet's nest by the power of God. And there is a kickback when you do that. But together, the Lord is sufficient in our midst. If you're in a season of your life right now where you've really got to do some realigning you got to get this prize, this verse 10 prize in your mind. And it's an hour of realigning. I want you to come and stand here if you, would, if you want to. We want to pray for you. We want to ask the Lord to, to help you realign, to be a man or a woman of one thing. Mary of Bethany. King David gazing on the Lord. Paul the Apostle. One thing I reach for. I press forth the prize. laid hold of you for something very special. God laid hold of you for something. He wants you to lay hold of it. am yours, you beloved. Pressing, reaching, Paul said. Pressing reaching, pressing, reaching, pressing, reaching. What did the Lord apprehend you for? What did He create you for? Why are you at the end of the age at such a time like this? Why are you on the earth right now? Why are you listening to this message? Why are you in this building tonight? What's happening in your life right now? Oh, I want to lay hold of it, Lord. I want to lay hold of something.